Thank you for tuning in to Aggie Catholic Talks. This talk is a recording from the 9 p.m. Magnify on November 20th, 2020. Our guest speaker, Allison Sullivan, talked about missionary discipleship. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast to keep up to date with other talks, including future talks from Magnify. Thanks, God bless, and gigum. Howdy! Okay. Forget y'all are so good at that. I have a question for you guys. Are y'all going to be able to take me seriously if you know that I have a sensor on my jeans? So here's, here's what happened. I don't think I could take a speaker seriously if I knew that they bought a pair of jeans, found out that the sensor was on, and then wore them anyway to the event. So I bought these pair of jeans um, last week. I had not worn them yet. I figured I should wear jeans that did not intentionally have holes in them. Um, while at Magnify, and then there, there that is. So, um, I feel like between this and that um, really generous introduction, y'all know me pretty well at this point. <laughs> this is actually pretty descriptive. So, um, I'm just going to dive right in. So, I was six years old when the Summer Olympics came to LA, and Mary Lou Retton, who was, y'all know, y'all wouldn't know, but yeah, oh, okay, good. Um, so, she's the Simone Biles of today. Um, Mary Lou Retton was when I was six, and uh, she put on quite a show. She won the gold medal for the all-around. She won two silver medals and two bronze medals, and her performance made her one of the most popular athletes in the whole United States, and certainly in our home, because I was obsessed. And I used our couch as my personal apparatus. The back of it made a really good balance beam. And the cushions were just bouncy enough that I could complete a full revolution of a front flip. And the arm of it made a lovely vault. So um, I soaked up every single feature story there was about her. I would make my parents read and reread. We would videotape, um, we would VHS, you know, all the, all the news stories that came out. And I knew most everything there was to know about Mary Loretton. I knew that she was born in 1968 in West Virginia. I knew about her injuries. I knew about her rivalries. I knew that she was the first woman on the Wheaties box and their first, first national spokeswoman. I loved Mary Loretta. And one day, I was in my 20s, and I was visiting this megachurch. They were putting on a Christmas program, and I was in the bathroom um, at this megachurch. I was washing my hands, and when I looked in the mirror, right to my left, I saw Mary Loretta. And somehow, after 20 years, she still had the same haircut. Like, I was positive it was her. And so it went like this. I, I was washing my hands, and I went, <gasps> when I saw her. So my gasp, it startled her. And so instead of like looking up into the mirror and engaging with me that way, she turned right to me and she said, are you okay? Now this sudden pressure, this sudden attention, it had me feeling all kinds of conflicted. I didn't know what to do. Should I, um, should I pretend that I didn't know what she was talking about? Should I just say, yeah, are you? <laughs> should I make up an ailment? I even considered producing um, a fake sneeze to make her think that like my gasp was somehow part of it. And so my, I was like, my mind was violently rolling through this Rolodex of, of scenarios, all scenarios, except the one which was the truth, which was that she was my childhood idol. And when I saw her, it surprised me. I don't know what was wrong with that explanation. Um, so eventually, out came the simple statement you are Mary Loretta. <laughs> she had this really great smile, um, to which she said, yes, I am. And then it was quiet for a beat too long. 
And here's what I landed on. I stuck out my wet hand and I said, thank you. <laughs> and then she shook my hand with her wet hand and it was the most awkward handshake ever. Um, and that was it. So I knew who Mary Loretta was. I could point her out. I knew the facts of her life. I admired her. We even had an encounter. But in that evening in the bathroom, she had no idea who I was. And she had no reason to. And so, you guys, Jesus says some really hard things. And Jesus wasn't a mincer of words. He absolutely did not pander. He was bold, and he said some really, really hard things. And I think one of the hardest things he ever said is from the book of Luke. Jesus, he was traveling through towns and villages, and he was teaching as, as he did it. He was making his way to Jerusalem. And he said these words. He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because many will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I never knew you. I don't know where you come from. I never knew you. Ouch. I don't know about you, but I would so much rather be berated by Jesus. I mean, hey, Allison, slow drivers in the fast lane, people who post vaguely on Facebook, Little League umpires, you really made a mess of all of that. But I never knew you. I can't bear it. And so as we take in those words and try to make sense of them, I think that it's really important to point out who he was talking to. Because Jesus was talking to a crowd made up of mostly religious Jews. They believed in the one true God. They weren't agnostics or polytheists. They were Hebrew-reading, scripture-abiding Jews who probably thought that because of all of that, they had life figured out just fine. And so in these words, Jesus was not addressing some pagan audience. He was talking to the church crowd, y'all. Most of whom assumed that they would go to heaven because they were really good Jews. And he gives this church crowd this parable to urge them into something more than just recognition. And when he does, he makes it sound really, really important. So I'm here tonight to talk to you guys about discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? A disciple. Not a knower, not an admirer, not some far-off fan, but a disciple. What does that mean? Because listen, Satan doesn't care if you know everything there is to know about Jesus. When and, and where he was born, his injuries, his rivalries, he knows all that stuff too. A little fleeting interest, some memorized stats, a weird handshake once. That just makes you a fan. It doesn't make you a disciple. And I'm afraid that it doesn't make Jesus any more than a savior than it would Mary Loretta. So what is discipleship? What does that mean? And how do we avoid ever hearing those dreadful words, I never knew you? Um, during motherhood, there is a really significant chunk of probably a decade where it feels like your kids are glued to you. And I actually kind of mean this literally. There's one stretch during infancy where I remember referring to them all as the cutest little barnacle I ever did see. And I'm really only just on my way out of this phase, but I tell you, for a good decade, I bathed with um, farm animals and dinosaurs and limbless Barbies all around me. It looked like something went terribly wrong. <laughs> there was some catastrophe. Um, I once had a root canal and had this really disturbing thought of, huh, this is kind of nice. Because I was having some me time. <laughs> 
And so the point is, is that as a mother, you spend a lot of time with your kids, so much so that they mimic everything that you do. My kids stirred a pot the way that I stirred a pot. They held the phone the way that I held the phone. They talked the way that I did. They used the same, word, the same words, and sometimes that was awesome. Like when they would comfort the baby if the baby was sad, using exactly what I would, would say. So sweet. And sometimes that was terrible, like when they would tell off other customers in Target. <laughs> True story. <laughs> I'm standing in line at Target, and a lady who was checking out at the same time, time as us, she, she just didn't see us, and she stepped right in front of us. She cut in line. And my daughter, well, she was tiny. She put her hand on her hip, and she put her hand out, and she goes, what the heck? Except, y'all, she didn't say heck. I was horrified. I have never left Target empty-handed, but I did that day. And so when you are a disciple, you are under the formation of someone. You are side by side, day by day. You walk like them. You talk like them. You become to think the way they might think. You feel the way they might feel. And of course, yes, first, there has to be an encounter. But friends, it can't stop there. It can't stop at fan following or an awkward handshake. Discipleship is different. And maybe this is what's more relatable. Maybe this is more common. What about this? You might have an initial encounter followed by the perfect plan. Because I always have the perfect plan. So many of us might have an encounter and then we start to apply our strategies or our formulas for success and we end up reducing our spirituality to just checkpoints, you know, on a list. Things to do, things not to do. And I'm afraid that these formulas, they might miss an important point because our spiritualities weren't designed to help us nail a to-do list. Our spiritualities were designed to bring us into communion with God. And we have to be really careful that whatever formula we might create, it isn't just about getting what we want out of God because I'm afraid that we have a tendency to reduce our rich faith to how to make our lives better. Our Catholic Christianity is not primarily about how to make our lives better. I said what I said. And it's not that it doesn't do that, but it's just not what it's about. Our Catholic Christianity is about a trinity and an incarnation and a resurrection, and it's how we collect our lives through him, through the sacraments. It's about being a disciple. It is about organizing our lives around the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, so much so that we talk the way he talks and thinks the way he thinks and feel the way he feels. And if we're just abiding by some list that we've, we've created, and if we're honest about our expectations of fulfilling that list... I would venture that nine times out of ten, I think that we'll find that what we really want is control, not communion. The Bible is not a list. There's nothing formulaic about it. It's a story about imperfect people having a relationship with a perfect God. And so often, we're just looking for self-help and calling it discipleship. And when we do that, we miss the poetry and the deeply emotional communication of God that shows us who he, who he is. Scripture tells us that when we abide, that when we abide in the word, that's when we learn the truth, and the truth will set us free. 
And y'all, our God is a person. He's a deeply relational person. And we sell Jesus short when we just dismiss our emotions. He's a person. And if he wasn't a person, he sure would be hard to follow. The incarnation matters. So you can read about someone, but do you know them? Because shaking someone's hand is so much different than being with them, than imitating them, than predicting their next move because you've studied them so intently. How would it change your day if you spent the whole day with Jesus apprenticing? A barnacle, one might say. How would it change how you study, how you date, how you drive? Because Jesus matters as I interact with my barista. It matters how I stand in line in Target. And so what I'm not going to do tonight, this is a little painful, I am not going to give you a bullet-pointed list of how to become a better disciple. It's hard for me because I'd really love to leave you with something that you could just kind of slip in your pocket all nice and neat. So I'm only going to focus on two things because two things doesn't make a list. Obviously, you have to have three things to call it a list. Okay, so the first thing that I want to say is that being a good disciple is that it really has to be authentic. And I think that there is a way to ensure that it is. For me, it has started with doing the things that stir my affection for God. I'm going to give you just a couple of my own personal examples, and I know that it will make you think of some of yours. I remember being 24. I was young, and I was on my own, and I was in this faraway country with three of my very best girlfriends, and it was really late at night. We were in the middle of a jungle in a canoe, and we were snaking down this river with what must have been one jillion trillion stars like pinholes in the sky above us. And the trees hung low, and the air smelled foreign, and we giggled with our tour guide trying to communicate without a common language. We were using charades, and we laughed and laughed that night in the middle of the jungle. And I was on this adventure, thick with his breathtaking creation. And I was so overwhelmed by his kindness that he allowed me this night to laugh in a canoe with people that I treasured. And in the privacy of that midnight setting, I lifted my hands up to the starry sky and I said, thank you. Thank you. Um, I also remember being in labor. I was induced with Pitocin, but I did not have pain medication. And so the contractions, they weren't natural contractions. They were more violent. They were closer together. And the delivery was altogether more intense than anyone expected, certainly me. And my husband wrapped himself around me and did nothing but fight that fight with me. As if our pain were shared, I'm actually not sure that it wasn't. And then quickly, so quickly, there she was, a little girl. And I couldn't get any words out. I couldn't speak. She came out puffy from all the work that she and I had already done together, and I couldn't get any words out, yet I have never felt more alive in my whole life. And when people left us alone together, I lifted my hands in the middle of that hospital room and said, thank you, thank you. And you don't need to be bringing life into the world or in a foreign country to have your affections for the Lord stirred. Um, the day-to-day -day ordinary events are just as awesome if you're paying attention. I love that we started out with gratitude tonight. I remember one Sunday, it was after church, and a friend had come in, and we had six kids be between us, and we went to church, and the stars aligned, and they were all behaved, and so we went to a Mexican restaurant to celebrate after, and we're sitting on this porch, and the kids were playing on a playground. We could hear them laughing. There was mariachi music, and here I was having this soulful conversation with people I adored, my husband, 
Uh, my friend who I would take a bullet for and her husband who is pure gold. And everything was just right in its place. You know those moments? And I was totally overwhelmed by the rightness of it all. Now, I did not raise my hands in the middle of the restaurant and say thank you, but I did in my heart. <laughs> thank you. And so when we do the things that make us feel alive, it's going to look different for everyone. Praise God for that. But we can't help but be awed by him. And with good reason, there is so much to be taken by. Animals, music, nature, friendship, babies, our bodies, science, art, and on and on and on. This world that he has given us, it is so full of his beauty. And if we would just take notice, that's when we become astonished at his goodness. So the stirring of our affections, it leads to astonishment. And I truly believe, this is, this is the point, is that people who are astonished by God make the most sincere disciples. And I'm afraid that we have lost astonishment in our gospel. We might have a neat explanation of it. We might have a ho-hum belief in it. Or maybe a rote knowledge or a listless acting out. But every single one of those things robs us of astonishment. And that eventually costs us authentic discipleship. My favorite verse in the whole Bible, it's in Mark. And it's where the women have gone to the tomb. They want to go take care of Jesus' body. But they find it empty and angels in there. And he tells them, I know who you're looking for. He's, he's not here. He has risen. And then he instructs them to go and tell the others, and they eventually do. But it ends with them um, trembling and speechless. And that is an appropriate response. Friends, I want to offer you this. What if those women, what if they would have, what if they would have shrugged their shoulders and said, oh yes, I thought this might be so. Oh, indeed, he rose. Yeah, I suspected as much. I know exactly what to do with this. I know how to use this. Here, have a seat. Let me show you how reasonable and rational and useful all of this is. It wouldn't have been an appropriate response. And I'm afraid that sometimes our church can be full of inappropriate responses because the real gospel is that God came down. And God, God got his hands dirty and his heart broken. God came down. He was born to a couple of teenagers on the run, a carpenter from Nazareth, poor, a teacher with a healing ministry viewed as a threat because he was trying to reorder a world based on power and dominance into one based on love and mercy, sentenced to death, crucified, died, and was buried. And then to the surprise of everyone, raised from the dead. And because of that, because of Jesus Christ raised from the dead, we bow with our knee, we confess with our tongue, and we groan for his return because God has borne witness. God has chosen to fix this broken world by repairing man's broken relationship with him by raising Jesus from the dead. Can someone just say hallelujah? Thank you! <laughs> oh, but you guys, when we lose astonishment in our gospel, we reduce it to practicality, a to-do list. And so that's what I want to leave you with tonight. Do the things that stir your affection for God. Return to the cross again and again and again to remember the miracles that you've been given, to be astonished by them. Because that's when our discipleship becomes authentic. Jesus shows us how to live when we study him, when we abide in the word. That's when we learn the truth of who he was, and that truth will set us free. 
guys get to know Jesus, go through the Gospels over and over and over again. Something new is going to stand out to you every single time. Go to adoration. As you listen, be open to correction. Study the Beatitudes. You cannot understand Jesus apart from the Beatitudes. I wish I had time to talk about each one. When Jesus gave those words, I never knew you, he was talking to a group of people who were missing out on discipleship. He was talking to people who had it backwards. They were doing all of these good things, thinking that it was going to make them acceptable. And Jesus was saying, I make you acceptable. So just come follow me and we can do great things together. Because guys, guess what? God doesn't want to change the world without us. How awesome is that? And so that's what this is about. Isn't that just it? That we would live our lives in such a way that the outside world would be intrigued. That's what discipleship is. So there's this story about Leonardo da Vinci. He was painting a painting, and he asked some talented student to come complete it. And the student said, I could never. I'm unworthy. I'm unable. And da Vinci silenced him and said, will not what I have done inspire you to do your best? Programs don't make disciples. Classes don't make disciples. Disciples make disciples. So let's stir our affection for God. Let's return to the cross again and again to remember our miracle, to be astonished. And then let's study who Jesus was in the word so that we start to live that out and make the outside world intrigued. I'm going to pray for us. God, thank you. Thank you for tonight in this room full of searchers, this room full of people who want to know you more. Jesus, you have told us that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. And then you've invited us to go make disciples. Help us to abide in your word so that we might learn the truth and so that that truth might set us free draw near tonight to us, God, as we draw near to you. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son.